Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. This is episode 268 for April 18th, 2022. We got a new show for you this week, and I've got a lot of topics to cover. Uh, I will say right off the bat that I'm a little bit under the weather right now, so uh, this may not sound as clean and clear as normal, and my editing may be a little bit looser than uh, usual. But uh, I will soldier on, uh, and we will get through the news today. There's a lot to cover. A couple things real quick before we get started. I don't know if you watched John Oliver or not. Uh, his last week tonight show on HBO was a lot of fun, and they're almost always posted online too. And he just did a bit on data brokers, which was quite good. Uh, I highly recommend you check it out. It was done really well. Of course, there's salty language, so it's not safe for work, and you might want to be careful about you know sensitive ears. But it's uh, he did a really good job of breaking down the problem as as he normally does. Uh, there's a link to the, in the show notes for that, so check that out and maybe share that around to some of your friends and family. It does a great job of explaining this in a um, non-technical way. Also, there's uh, been some big updates for Windows and for Chrome. So uh, Patch 2C just came out and patched some really nasty zero-day bugs, so make sure your Windows systems are up to date and make sure your Chrome browser, if you're still using Chrome for some reason, is also up to date. Got kind of a smorgasbord of topics this week, uh, both privacy and security. We're going to start off with a story about T-Mobile uh, we reported on a breach that they had last year and, uh, they tried to buy their customer data back and that failed. The feds have uncovered what they're calling a Swiss army knife for hacking industrial control systems. That's not good for any of us. 8 million cash app users have potentially been exposed in a data breach. The Pegasus spyware has been found to be, uh, installed on some senior European union officials, uh, who were alerted by Apple. There's a story about a microchip implant. This has been around for a while, but uh, this story was interesting and I wanted to bring it up again because I'm sure it won't be the last time we hear about that. There's an article from The Verge on why this person is done with the Wise camera. Those are W-Y-Z-E. Cheap little IoT devices that apparently don't have good security. We'll talk about how hackers are using face police data requests uh, to get uh, info from tech companies and why that's a problem. And finally, we're going to talk about VPNs. I want to spend some time today talking about demystifying what they are and what they are not specifically, starting with an article from Tom's Guide that came from a, a hacker conference that just happened called ShmooCon, which I've been wanting to go to for a long time, but it's really hard to get into. Like the tickets sell out immediately and you have to, you know, like know somebody to, to, to get in the door there, apparently. <laughs> so uh, I would love to have gone, but uh, anyway, this person had a... Uh, an article about why VPNs are basically snake oil. And I'll read that article and then I uh, have my own kind of a take on that. And that will be our tip of the week. So let's get to it. All right, first off, actually just a very short blurb from this article from Vice. I'm not going to read the whole article. Uh, these couple paragraphs will drive it home. And it says, last year, T-Mobile confirmed it was breached after hackers offered to sell the personal data of 30 million of its subscribers for six Bitcoin, worth around $270,000 at that time. According to court documents unsealed today, and this would have been last week, a third party hired by T-Mobile tried to pay the hackers for exclusive access to that data and limit it from leaking more widely. The plan ultimately failed and the criminals continued to sell the data despite the third party giving them a total of $200,000. But the news unearths some of the controversial tactics that might be used by companies as they respond to data breaches, either to mitigate the leak of stolen information or in an attempt to identify who has breached their networks. 
And the article goes on actually kind of backing up a lot of what they just said with evidence and things that they pulled from these court documents. And I'm not going to bother going into that. But the the upshot here is that after this breach, T-Mobile contacted a third party, appears to be Mandiant, who's a security company. And I say appears because all of this is, again, this is speculation based on what they're piecing together from some of these court documents. And I don't want to run afoul of uh, of any of these spec uh, any of the speculation but anyway they, they found a security company to approach the hackers who were posting this data for sale and tried to basically get them to sell them the data exclusively for a you know pretty tidy sum of money the idea being that you know they would get the data from the hackers they would delete the data and have the hackers delete that data because they're paying them extra for exclusive access and then it would just kind of go away well that didn't work out as planned Surprise, surprise. So basically the hackers took the money and they kept selling the data anyway. So again, bottom line, all these things is, you know, obviously you want to have better security, but you also just want to minimize data collection. You know, if you don't have something that could be stolen, it's a moot point. Now, obviously T-Mobile needs to know some things about their customers. So in this case, they just did a poor job of securing that data somehow. Uh, I forget what the details of the breach were. I don't know if it was an inside job or if they were hacked or what, but their data got loose and that's ultimately their responsibility. And their attempts to kind of quash that failed spectacularly. All right, next up, this is a story from Wired and it's about a new hacking system or a tool set, uh, which by the way, are very common. <laughs> when engineers are well known for automating as much as possible. If, if I have to do a task more than twice, I'm going to write a script to automate that. And so when you're doing hacking stuff, it's a lot of tedious work. And so what hackers often do is they automate those into tool sets. And unfortunately, what that means is that what we call script kitties, people who have no real technical knowledge, if they can know where to find these tools, they can get up to some pretty serious hacking uh, without really having any skill set. Anyway, let me read from this Wired article. It says, Malware designed to target industrial control systems like power grids, factories, water utilities, and oil refineries represents a rare species of digital badness. So when the United States government warns of a piece of code built to target not just one of those industries, but potentially all of them, critical infrastructure owners worldwide should take notice. On Wednesday, and this I think was just last Wednesday, the Department of Energy, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, the NSA, and the FBI jointly released an advisory about a new hacker toolset potentially capable of meddling with a wide range of industrial control system equipment. More than any previous industrial control system hacking toolkit, which obviously implies that there are several, and there are, the malware contains an array of components designed to disrupt or take control of the functioning of devices, including programmable logic controllers, or PLCs, that are sold by Schneider Electric and Omron, that's O-M-R-O-N, that's some company name, and are designed to serve as the interface between traditional computers and the actuators and sensors in industrial environments. Another component of the malware is designed to target Open Platform Communications Unified Architecture, or OCPUA servers, the computers that communicate with those controllers. And this is a quote from Sergio Caltagironi. It's a weird name. I'm totally butchering it. But um, he's the vice president of threat intelligence at a company called Dragos. And he says, Quote, this is the most expansive industrial control system attack tool that anyone has ever documented. It's like a Swiss army knife with a huge number of pieces to it, unquote. Dragos says the malware has the ability to hijack target devices, disrupt or prevent operators from accessing them, permanently brick them, which means when you brick an electronic something with software on it, you put software on it that makes it unusable forever. You've turned it into effectively a brick. 
or use them as a foothold to give hackers access to other parts of an industrial control system network. He notes that while the toolkit, which Dragos calls Pipe Dream, appears to specifically target Schneider Electric and Omron PLCs, it does so by exploiting underlying software in those PLCs, known as CodeSys, which is used far more broadly across hundreds of other types of PLCs. This means that the malware could easily be adapted to work in almost any industrial environment. The CISA advisory refers to an unnamed APT actor that developed the malware toolkit using the common acronym APT to mean Advanced Persistent Threat, a term for state-sponsored hacker groups. It's far from clear where the government agencies found the malware or which country's hackers created it, though the timing of the advisory follows warnings from the Biden administration about the Russian government making preparatory moves to carry out disruptive cyber attacks in the midst of its invasion of Ukraine. Dragos also declined to comment on the malware's origin, but their spokesperson says it doesn't appear to have been actually used against a victim, or at least it hasn't yet triggered actual physical effects on a victim's industrial control systems. And a quote from him again, he says, quote, We have high confidence it hasn't been deployed yet for disruptive or destructive effects, unquote. While the toolkit's ability means it could be used against practically any industrial environment, from manufacturing to water treatment, Dragos points out that the apparent focus on Schneider Electric and Omron PLCs does suggest that the hackers may have built it with power grid and oil refineries, particularly liquefied natural gas facilities, in mind given Schneider's wide use in electrical utilities and Omron's broad adoption in the oil and gas sector. The representatives suggest the ability to send commands to servo motors and those petrochemical facilities via Omron PLCs could be particularly dangerous with the ability to cause, quote, destruction or even loss of life, unquote. The CISA advisory doesn't point to any particular vulnerabilities in the devices or software the Pipe Dream malware targets, though the representative says it does exploit multiple zero-day vulnerabilities, which are previously unpatched hackable software flaws, that are still being fixed. He notes, however, that even patching those vulnerabilities won't prevent most of PipeDream's capabilities, as it's largely designed to hijack the intended functionality of target devices and send legitimate commands in the protocols they use. The CISA advisory includes a list of measures that infrastructure operators should take to protect their operations from limiting industrial control systems network connections to implementing monitoring systems for ICS systems, in particular, that send alerts to implementing monitoring systems for ICS systems in particular that send alerts for suspicious behavior. All right, so <laughs> that was a fun article. It's not surprising. I'm glad we found it before it was being used, which gives us a chance to try to defend against it. But honestly, a lot of our infrastructure stuff is just not well secured. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad to see that we're having some of these incidents now before anything too major happens. I mean, there was the Colonial Pipeline thing, which, by the way, if you recall, the Colonial Pipeline hack was for the billing systems, not for the actual pipeline systems. But since they couldn't charge for their gas, they, they shut everything down. But this is talking specifically about the actual, you know, power grid or energy systems uh, affecting them directly with, in wastewater stuff like that one in Florida where that guy tried to poison the local town by messing with the chemical distribution in the wastewater treatment. So these are all really critical systems and we need to get them secure. So hopefully incidents like this will cause us to beef up our security and get ahead of the game. All right, next up, an article from CPO Magazine. It's about the Cash App. And if you've ever used like Venmo or some of these other apps to send money to people, Cash App is like that. In a regulatory filing with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC, Cash App's parent company, Block, says it discovered the intrusion in December 2021. According to Block's disclosure, the former employee, 
who had access to the information during his tenure, downloaded data for customers who use the Cash App Investing stock function. Cash App Investing is a stock trading platform by Block, formerly Square Incorporated, owned by Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey. Block also owns Cash App peer-to-peer payment platform, Tidal Music Streaming Services, and Spiral cryptocurrency app. Cash App is only available in the United States and the United Kingdom and had about 44 million users in 2019. The San Francisco, California-based financial services company says it notified law enforcement after its investigation determined how the former employee illegally accessed the records. And this is a quote from Block's spokeswoman, Fiona Lee. She says, quote, Upon discovery, we took steps to remediate the issue and launched an investigation with the help of a leading forensics firm. We know how these reports were accessed and we have notified law enforcement, unquote. Cash App did not disclose how the former employee gained access to the information, but it's likely that he had access to the data long after leaving the company. And this is a quote from Chris Clements, uh, as a VP of Solutions Architecture at Cerberus Sentinel, uh, which I guess is, is a security company. He says, quote, The statement released does not go into detail about the way the records were accessed by the former employee, but, but, but from my experience, I believe it's possible that the breach could have come from an orphaned account still active on a third-party SaaS application, that's software as a service, like a cloud storage solution, unquote. Such mishaps may also occur when there is a lack of proper communication between the human resources and the IT department on the status of terminated employees. Eric Cron, a security awareness advocate at Know Before, said that the data breach underscores the need for a, quote, well-defined employee offboarding process, unquote. He noted that some former employees feel entitled to information and intellectual property that they helped to create. Thus, the failure to remove their access could allow them to return and take it. And a quote from him, he says, quote, Without a strong offboarding process, accounts that should be disabled can easily be missed, leaving them open for abuse by ex-employees. Shared passwords are equally as dangerous, especially if they're not changed immediately after an employee leaves, unquote. And Block said it would contact current and former app users and provide resources for navigating the breach. All right, so the moral of this story is the offboarding part. And that's an industry euphemism for, you know, what happens when you let somebody go. And, and that includes when they quit. And it's not just being fired or laid off. But when an employee leaves a the company, they have knowledge of stuff. And a lot of that knowledge could be, you know, passwords and access to accounts that they should be cut off from when they are terminated or when they leave the company. And it doesn't always happen. And that's the point here. And the, the supposition here is that this is from a former employee who, for some reason, was not cut off from access to some of this information and then went back and took it after they were no longer an employee. And I think that was what happened in the Florida wastewater treatment facility hack as well. I mean, it wasn't really a hack. I think it was a former employee uh, who was using a, a set of credentials that was like widely known. It was it was like put it on a post-it note and everybody uses the same thing. And it was not changed after this person left the company. And so they still had access to it. All right, next up, this is from 9to5Mac. And it's about our friends, the NSO group who makes the Pegasus spyware. And the article says it's today been reported, and this was released on April 11th, that Pegasus spyware hacked iPhones belonging to senior European Union officials, including that of the European Justice Commissioner. NSO denies that its spyware was used, though the company's past contradictory statements don't lend the denial too much credibility. NSO Group makes spyware called Pegasus, which is sold to government and law enforcement agencies. The company purchases so-called zero-day vulnerabilities, ones that are unknown to Apple in this case, from hackers. And its software is capable of mounting zero-click exploits, where no user interaction is required by the target. 
In particular, simply receiving a particular iMessage without opening it or interacting with it in any way could allow an iPhone to be compromised, with most personal data exposed. Apple patches vulnerabilities as they come to light, while the NSO purchases details of new ones. The Cupertino company now also proactively looks for signs that iPhones have been compromised by Pegasus and sends alerts to victims. Reuters reports that it was alerts from Apple that led to the EU attacks being identified. And this is a quote from Reuters. It says, Senior officials at the European Commission were targeted last year with spy software designed by an Israeli surveillance firm, according to two EU officials and documentation reviewed by Reuters. Among them was Didier Reynards, a senior Belgian statesman who served as the European Justice Commissioner since 2019, according to one of the documents. At least four other commission staffers were also targeted. The commission became aware of the targeting following messages issued by Apple to thousands of iPhone owners in November, telling them that they were, quote, targeted by state-sponsored attackers, unquote, the two EU officials said. And then back to the article from 9 to 5. As non-tech employees would not necessarily understand the severity of this warning, a senior tech staffer emailed details of the Pegasus threat and asked everyone to look out for this message from Apple. It is unclear at present which country used Pegasus to carry out these attacks. The NSO group claims that attacks, quote, could not have happened with NSO's tools, unquote. While we wouldn't give much credence to this, Reuters does report that an almost identical piece of spyware is also sold by fellow Israeli company Quadream. And that's Q-U-A-D-R-E-A-M. The U.S. has already banned the import and use of Pegasus, and it's being suggested that this incident may lead the European Union to do the same. So not much to add to that, but just more evidence that this NSO group stuff, you know, when you try to create software that's only used by good guys, uh, it can still fall into bad guys' hands or still be used for nefarious purposes. All right, next up, this is an article from the BBC, and I've seen similar stories like this uh, in the past and may have commented on them here, but... Um, it's always good to bring these up again because <laughs> I think the the take that this article took on this, the spin that it took was uh, a little bit too easygoing. So anyway, uh, this is from the BBC. It says, Patrick Palmen causes a stir when he pays for something in a shop or a restaurant. This is because the 37-year-old doesn't need to use a bank card or his mobile phone to pay. Instead, he simply places his left hand near the contact list card reader and the payment goes through. And this is a quote from Mr. Palmer, who's a security guard uh, from the Netherlands. And he says, quote, the reactions I get from cashiers are priceless, unquote. He is able to pay using his hand because back in 2019, he had a contactless payment microchip injected under his skin. And this is a quote from him again. He says, quote, the procedure hurts as much as when someone pinches your skin, unquote. British Polish firm Walletmore says that last year it became the first company to offer them for sale. And this is a quote from founder and uh, chief executive, and I'm going to butcher this name, Washtek Paprota? Anyway, uh, the founder says, quote, The implant can be used to pay for a drink on the beach in Rio, a coffee in New York, a haircut in Paris, or at your local grocery store. It can be used wherever contactless payments are accepted, unquote. Wallamore's chip, which weighs less than a gram and is a little bigger than a grain of rice, is comprised of a tiny microchip and an antenna encased in a biopolymer, a naturally sourced material similar to plastic. Mr. Paprota adds that it's entirely safe, has regulatory approval, works immediately after being implanted, and will stay firmly in place. It also does not require a battery or other power source. The firm says it has now sold more than 500 of the chips. The technology that Walletmore uses is Near Field Communication, or NFC, the contactless payment system in smartphones. Other payment implant systems are based on radio frequency identification, or ARFID, 
which is the similar technology typically found in physical contactless debit and credit cards. For many of us, the idea of having such a chip implanted in our body is an appalling one, but a 2021 survey of more than 4,000 people across the UK and the European Union found that 51% would consider it. However, without giving a percentage figure, the report added that, quote, invasiveness and security issues remain a major concern, unquote, for the respondents. Mr. Palman says he doesn't have any of these worries. And this is another quote from him. He says, quote, chip implants contain the same technology that people use on a daily basis, from key fobs to unlocked doors, public transit cards like the London Oyster card or bank cards with contactless payment function. The reading distance is limited by the small antenna coil inside the implant. The implant needs to be within the electromagnetic field of an RFID or NFC reader. Only when there is a magnetic coupling between the reader and the transponder can the implant be read, unquote. He adds that he's not concerned that his whereabouts could be tracked. Another quote from him, he says, quote, RFID chips are used in pets to identify them when they're lost, but it's not possible to locate them using an RFID chip implant. The missing pet needs to be found physically. Then the entire body gets scanned until the RFID chip implant is found and read, end quote. Yet the issue with such chips and what causes concern is whether in the future they become even more advanced and packed full of a person's private data and in turn, whether this information is secure, and if a person could indeed be tracked. And here's another name I'm going I'm to get wrong. Nada Kakabadzi, a professor of policy, governance, and ethics at Reading University's Henley Business School, is also cautious about the future of more advanced embedded chips. And in the quote from her, she says, There's a dark side to the technology that has a potential for abuse. To those with no love of individual freedom, it opens up seductive new vistas for control, manipulation, and oppression. And who owns the data? Who has access to the data? And is it ethical to chip people like we do pets? The result, she cautions, could be a, quote, disempowerment of many for the benefits of a few, unquote. All right, so <laughs> I don't think I have to explain to you why this is bad. Despite what this person said, it is possible to read some of these chips at a greater distance than what he's claiming. Uh, they're built to be read at a very short distance, but with the right kind of equipment, you can read them at a, at a much larger distance. And unlike, you know, your credit cards and things like that, that you can or cannot keep on you at any point, you could also buy special wallets uh, that are RFID blocking wallets. They are basically lined with a wire mesh, which turns them into a Faraday cage. That's a fancy term for something that just blocks electromagnetic radiation. Uh, and you could get this for passwords, too, because a lot of modern passwords have these same chips in them to prevent them from being read when you don't want them to be read, which kind of implies that they could be read at a, at a much longer distance, right? The other side is you can't just remove this thing when you want to. It's not like an Apple Watch that you can take off or a phone that you can leave behind. This is permanently embedded in your body and would have to be surgically removed. I first read a story about this, uh, about some company in Minnesota that was offering this to their employees, and it was totally optional, but if they put this chip in their hand, they could get they could get into secure areas with it like it was a badge. They could pay for things at the vending machines in the company. You know, yeah, it's convenient, but man, it's super, super creepy. I'll stick with my Apple Watch and Apple Pay. Thank you very much. All right, this next story is from The Verge, uh, and it's about somebody who uses WYZE, W-Y-Z-E, home security cameras, and why he is done using them. Uh, and I'll read you excerpts from this article. It says, I just threw my wise home security cameras in the trash. I'm done with this company. I just learned that for the past three years, Wise has been fully aware of a vulnerability in its home security cameras that could have theoretically let hackers access your video feeds over the internet and chose to sweep it under the rug. And the security firm that found the vulnerability largely let them do it. 
Instead of patching it, instead of recalling it, instead of just, you know, saying something so I could stop pointing these cameras at my kids, Wise simply decided to discontinue the Wise Cam V1 this January without a full explanation. But on Tuesday, security research firm Bitdefender finally shed light on why Wise stopped selling it. Because someone could theoretically access your camera's SD card, steal the encryption key, and start watching and downloading its video. Since I published this editorial, several people have reached out to explain the issue isn't as bad as you might have imagined reading my words. That hackers would likely have to be inside your home network, or you would have had to make an egregious mistake by configuring your firewall to provide internet access to the camera's virtual port. I checked with Bitdefender, and it suggests that that's partially true. And this sounds like a response from them that says the remote attack, in other words, from outside of your home network, requires an initial camera ID, a completely random and non-predictable string that can only be acquired if present on the same network as the device. In other words, someone connects to your home Wi-Fi, they get that token, and at a later moment, use any of the other working remote exploits to hack your device from their home or wherever else in the world they are. So back to his article, it says, that makes me feel a little better, and I apologize for misleading anyone, but my cameras are still going in the e-waste bin because Wise decided it wasn't important to tell anyone about this vulnerability or do anything about it for years. It didn't tell customers when it discontinued the camera in the three years since Bitdefender brought it to Wise's attention in March 2019, and possibly not ever. Wise spokesperson Kyle Christensen told me that as far as the company's concerned, it's already been transparent with its customers and has, quote, fully corrected the issue, unquote. But Wise only corrected it for the newer versions of the Wise Cam. And even then, it only finished patching the V2 and V3 versions on January 29th, 2022, according to Bleeping Computer. As far as being transparent, the most I've seen Wise tell customers was that, quote, your continued use of the Wise Cam after February 1st, 2022 carries increased risk, is discouraged by Wise, and is entirely at your own risk, unquote. It also sometimes sends vague emailed messages like this to its customers, which I used to appreciate, but I am now retroactively questioning. And this is a, um, a posting of one of these emails that says, Hey friends, it's a new year and that comes with some important updates. Protecting you and your security is always top of mind. And for us to do that, we need to one, update your Wise app to at least 2.27 and two, update your WiseCam firmware. This will make sure your devices are in tip top shape so you can breathe easy and know Wise has your back. When I read those words about increased risk in our Verge post regarding the Wisecam V1's discontinuation, I remember thinking it just referred to future security updates, not a major vulnerability that already exists and justifies discontinuing the entire device. Wise addressed its decision here in a full blog post, and of course that's a link that you can't click on listening to, but it's in the article if you go to the show notes, uh, on Thursday, which reiterates that the vulnerabilities require, quote, some form of local network access, unquote, and explains that the original Wisecam V1 specifically didn't have enough memory to patch these issues, meaning that the onboard RAM or whatever uh, memory space this camera had wasn't big enough to fix the software patch that would have fixed the issue. Notably, Wise's statement on Thursday includes no details of the vulnerability or what might have been at risk. Wise has still not told its customers what was wrong. Here's another question. Why on earth would Bitdefender not disclose this for three whole years when it could have forced Wise's hand? According to the security research firm's own disclosure timeline, it reached out to Wise in March 2019 and didn't even get a response until November of 2020, a year and eight months later. Yet Bitdefender chose to keep quiet until yesterday. In case you're wondering, no, that is not normal in the security community. While experts tell me that the concept of a 
quote, responsible disclosure timeline, unquote, is a little outdated and heavily depends on the situation, we're generally measuring in days, not years. And this is a quote from Alex Stamos, a well-respected um, uh, crypto guy and director of the Stanford Internet Observatory and former security officer at Facebook. And he said, quote, the majority of researchers have policy where if they make a good faith effort to reach a vendor and don't get a response that they publicly disclose in 30 days, unquote. I asked Bitdefender about this, and of course, this is the author of the article, and PR director Steve Fiore had an explanation, but it doesn't sit very well with me. And I've edited this a little bit for brevity. It says, quote, our findings were so serious, our decision, regardless of our usual 90-day with grace period extensions policy, was that publishing this report without Wise's acknowledgement and mitigation was going to expose potentially millions of customers with unknown implications. We understand this is not necessarily a common practice with our with other researchers, but disclosing the findings before having the vendor provide patches would have put a lot of people at risk. So when WISE did eventually communicate and provided us with credible information on their capability to address the issues reported, we decided to allow them time and granted extensions. All right, so this article brings up a few different things. First of all, obviously, is this whole reporting and deadline kind of system. It's, it's an unwritten rule. It's, it's not hard and fast. It's certainly not a regulation anywhere um, that when you know, companies run across these vulnerabilities and they want to responsibly disclose them, uh, they generally notify the company through some official means and they are trying to standardize ways in which, you know, you can contact a company with this sort of vulnerability information. But we still got a long way to go even in that front. But anyway, so there should be channels by which you can notify them that, hey, I found a pretty serious bug in your stuff. You better go get this fixed. Uh, and usually what happens is a company notifies them once or twice, gives them a chance to respond. But at some point, they figure that if we don't release the information about this, the company may never fix it, right? I mean, the company could just sit on that information, which obviously Wise did in this case. And that someone else, like, you know, some APT or some other hacking group is going to figure out this same vulnerability and start exploiting it. So to put pressure on them, they often say, okay, well, I'm, we've notified you. You now have 30 days or 60 days or, you know, maybe up to 90 days to, to do something about this or at least get back to us and say that you're going to fix it. And, you know, and they kind of, there's this back and forth game where they try to keep the pressure up and say, look, if you don't do something soon, we're going to have to release this and then you're going to have to fix it. Anyway, in this case, uh, the company that founded basically didn't get a response from Wise for, you know, 18 months or something, but thought it was so bad that if they disclosed it without hearing, even hearing back from Wise, that they would just make all those people vulnerable. Anyway, it's, it's tough. This is, it's not straightforward. This is a weird situation. I, I understand why they, they at least took this position and I'm not sure it was the right one, but this is the kind of stuff we're dealing with and why we need to come up with standardized policies around these kind of things. And yes, probably some regulations. But of course, the more specific note is if you happen to have one of these cameras, and this is the wise camera W Y Z E. Uh, and you've got certainly if you've got the version one of that camera, and you can probably tell by looking at maybe the, uh, the, the, the label, the sticker on the device itself, that's probably it says right there what version of the, of the hardware it is. If you look on there and it's version one, or maybe if it doesn't say anything, because they may not have labeled version one as version one, uh, they may have only labeled the ones after it that were version two and version three, uh, you probably want to pitch that camera. And like this guy, I mean, th this was really bad. I mean, these, this company did not do the right thing. And so I wouldn't necessarily trust them going forward to keep doing the right thing. But if you insist on keeping and using these cameras, if, if you've got a V2 or a V3, you make sure you get that app updated and make sure you get the firmware updated on that camera. All right, next up, a, a short little blurb here from uh, Bruce Schneier's blog. 
And again, I'd like to quote him because he <laughs> he does my job for me and pulls out the most important bits from other articles where he, he gets his information. So, uh, And he pulled his information from Brian Krebs, and he says, Brian Krebs has a detailed post about hackers using fake police data requests to trick companies into handing over data. And here's his um, uh, quote from the Brian Krebs article. It says, virtually all major technology companies serving large numbers of users online have departments that routinely review and process such requests, which are typically granted as long as the proper documents are, pro are provided and the request appears to come from an email address connected to an actual police department domain name. But in certain circumstances, such as a case involving imminent harm or death, an investigating authority may make what's known as an emergency data request or an EDR which largely bypasses any official review and does not require the requester to supply any court-approved documents. It's now clear that some hackers have figured out that there's no quick and easy way for a company that receives one of these EDRs to know whether it's legitimate. Using their illicit access to police email systems, the hackers will send a fake EDR along with an attestation that innocent people will likely suffer greatly or die unless the requested data is provided immediately. In this scenario, the receiving company finds itself caught between two unsavory outcomes— failing to immediately comply with an EDR and potentially having someone's blood on their hands or possibly leaking a customer record to the wrong person. And that goes back to uh, Bruce Schneier. He says, another article claims that both Apple and Facebook or Meta or whatever they want to be called now fell for this scam. And there's links there that you can follow. And then he says, we allude to this kind of risk in our 2015 Keys Under Doormats paper. And this is a quote from some paper that Bruce apparently co-authored. It says, quote, Third, and I guess this was part of a list that he didn't read the, all of the list, exceptional access would create concentrated targets that could attract bad actors. Security credentials that unlock the data would have to be retained by the platform provider, law enforcement agencies, or some other trusted third party. If law enforcement's keys guaranteed access to everything, an attacker who gained access to those keys would enjoy the same privilege. Moreover, law enforcement's stated need for rapid access to data would make it impractical to store keys offline or to split keys among multiple key holders, as security engineers would normally do with extremely high-value credentials. And then back to Bruce in the current day, he says, the quote-unquote credentials are even more insecure than we could have imagined. Access to an email address. And I'll explain that in a second. And the data, of course, isn't very secure. But imagine how this kind of thing could be abused with a law enforcement encryption backdoor. All right, so let me summarize this. So what it sounds like happened here is that these hackers figured out a way to get into um, the email system of some police department. So they, they were able to send an email from the police department with a proper police department domain name. So, you know, goodguycop at bostonpd.com or something like that. And so they used that apparently a legitimate looking email address to send one of these emergency data requests, EDRs to whatever company they wanted to get somebody's data on. And, you know, said, Hey, if, if you don't give me the information about, you know, Joe Smith here really quick, you know, people are going to die. And they use this technique of basically a phishing technique or a social engineering technique to get people's data. So this is, this is a tough one. This is an end run around any security that might be there, right? So it doesn't matter how secure that data is. This is a social engineering attack. So you just need to find someone who does have access and probably right, rightfully so, and then convince them to bypass the normal security procedures and cough up that data. And obviously this, that really happens. There, there are really going to be cases where someone needs data right now and I don't have time to get a warrant or something bad's going to happen. So I'm not really sure what the, I'm not really sure what the solution is here, but I wanted to, wanted you to be aware of the problem. Okay, one more article, and this will roll right into my tip of the week. And let's talk about 
Virtual Private Networks, or VPNs. When people don't understand how something works, it could be easy to be afraid of the consequences of that thing not working right. Uh, and this also makes them ripe targets for being frightened by hucksters who would then happily sell them a solution for the problem. Uh, and this was the trade of snake oil salesmen back in the day, you know, selling cures for ailments that didn't exist or that didn't actually improve the customer's health, or maybe even worse than that, it could harm them, right? And the realm of computers is rife with cybersecurity snake oil as well. Uh, and one of the most lucrative products in that realm is the virtual private network or the VPN service. So today we're going to talk about what a VPN is, you know, and maybe more importantly, what it is not. Now, a lot of this work is going to be done for me by this article I'm about to read from a presentation that came from ShmooCon uh, this year, which is a cybersecurity conference. So let me read. Uh, it's kind of long, and I did cut out some parts of it, but uh, it does a good job. So I want to read through this, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more about what a VPN is and whether you should use one. Most consumer VPN services overpromise what they can deliver and exaggerate their own usefulness, two security researchers said at the ShmooCon Hacker Conference here last Thursday, or March 24th, so it's actually been a little bit, a little bit of a go. Quote, lots of people use VPNs because they don't actually know what they do. People are spending a lot of money and they're still getting hacked, or they're spending a lot of money for protections they already have, unquote. And that's from uh, Yale Grower, who's from uh, Consumer Reports. And James Troutman, a director of technology at Tilson Broadband, was even more blunt in his presentation later that same day. He says, quote, VPNs are internet snake oil, unquote. Like the proverbial snake oil, Troutman and Grower explained VPNs claim to resolve all sorts of security and privacy ills, tossing around impressive sounding but meaningless terms such as unbreakable security, true privacy, and military-grade encryption. The VPNs may claim in their ads and on their websites that they could protect your PC from hackers or keep your password safe or make sure that websites can't track you. For that, they claim it's worth paying between $50 and $150 a year for their services. In 2021, Grower and team from the University of Michigan tested 51 consumer VPN providers. Along with Consumer Reports colleagues, she made more extensive analysis of 16 major, VP major VPN brands, including CyberGhost, ExpressVPN, Hotspot Shield, IPVanish, NordVPN, Private Internet Access, ProtonVPN, and Surfshark. And it says parenthetically here that they both recommend against using lesser-known VPNs, especially free VPN services that pop up in mobile app stores. Grower found that of the 16 well-known VPN services she analyzed, 12 made exaggerated claims about how much protection they really could provide. One well-known VPN said, quote, your data will never be compromised, unquote, if you used it. Grower documented it in her white paper. Another VPN said it would, quote, protect you from hackers and online hacking, unquote. A third promised, quote, absolute privacy on all devices, unquote. Another guaranteed, quote, anonymous surfing, unquote. The fact is, Grower and Troutman said that VPNs can't protect you from hackers or malware. While VPNs do increase your online privacy, they're not doing much to make your computers and systems more secure. VPNs also can't stop your personal information from being disclosed in data breaches. They can't stop websites from tracking you. There are many other ways to track you online besides just following your IP address. VPNs can't prevent you from landing on phishing sites or from being tricked into giving your passwords to criminals. And they can't quote-unquote guarantee your privacy, Troutman said. And this is a quote from Grower. They say, quote, when people ask me if they should use a VPN, I tell them, no, they should use a password manager instead, unquote. However, four of the 16 VPNs that Grower and her team closely analyzed got high marks for honesty. iVPN, Mozilla VPN, Molvad, and TunnelBear were clear and accurate about what VPNs could and couldn't do. 
They also gave potential customers suggestions about other security and privacy best practices they could take, such as using two-factor authentication or 2FA and blocking browser trackers. Both Grower and Troutman said that there are legitimate reasons to use VPNs, and that for the most part, the better-known VPNs do a good job of making your network connections more private. VPNs protect against man-in-the-middle attacks that you might encounter using open Wi-Fi networks in a coffee shop or hotel, even though the risks for that are small now that most websites use encrypted connections already. VPNs make it more difficult for internet service providers, or ISPs, to see which websites you're visiting, although Troutman pointed out that your VPN will be seeing that information instead. VPNs can help people in repressive countries evade mass censorship, such as Russia's recent blocking of Facebook and Instagram. And of course, VPNs often, but not always, can let you access overseas Netflix and other services that are geographically restricted. But, Troutman said, VPNs in practice can't do much to protect specific individuals from state surveillance. National intelligence agencies have means at their disposal that can easily evade the protections a VPN would provide a targeted person. And as Troutman says, quote, Mossad is gonna Mossad, unquote. And if you're not familiar, that's, I believe, the Israeli intelligence agency, kind of like the Israeli CIA or NSA. Grower and Troutman added that while VPNs do a good job of masking the old form of IP addresses known as IPv4 or version 4, they don't always work well with IP addresses using the newer IPv6 standard. That's because many devices' IPv6 addresses are tied to the device's unique network hardware information, part of a well-documented network privacy flaw that extends beyond VPN use. Now, I'm not going to get into all that here. I actually may talk about this a little bit um, for the bonus content for my patrons. But basically, this is the MAC address. The MAC address is the hardware identifier uh, associated with the network card in your device. And apparently, a lot of IPv6's addresses are tied to that. And if you know that, uh, with some other information, you can actually hyperlocate people uh, in some situations just based on their IPv6 address. All right, going back to the article. Yet the VPN industry has grown to take in an estimated $30 billion per year, partly through repeating unverifiable claims and exploiting customers' fears of surveillance technology, Troutman said. One big impetus for VPN adoption was Edward Snowden's 2013 leaks of NSA documents that showed how extensive American data collection could be. Another was the U.S. Senate's 2017 vote to block an FCC rule that would have prevented ISPs from reselling data about consumer behavior. And finally, many security experts and security-focused websites, including Tom's Guide, did and do still recommend using VPNs. VPN providers launched advertising campaigns around these issues, claiming that only paying for their services could preserve your online privacy. Advertising is still a big part of the industry. This is another quote from Proutman. Uh, they says, quote, How many of you listen to podcasts? It seems that every podcast is sponsored by VPN, unquote. You can't always count on review websites to provide honest information about VPNs. Troutman and Grower pointed out that many of the VPN quote-unquote review sites you can find through a Google search are actually owned by the VPN providers. Even if a site recommends more than one VPN, recent VPN industry consolidation means that many of the largest brands are owned by the same few companies, which is something that I have talked about recently on this show. All right, just a little bit more here. Uh, so what are VPNs really good for? So is there any downside to using a VPN that stretches the truth? Not that much, other than you may be paying for something you may not need. And I'll circle back to that in a minute. I'm not sure that's, I think there actually is a harm there, but I'll come back to that. Grower and her team found that most of the 16 top providers she looked at used strong encryption, had no known security flaws, didn't collect much user information, didn't share information with third parties, and had clear and easy to find terms of service. 
They also found that if a VPN provider made exaggerated claims in bold letters about the benefits of, of using its services, those claims were often dialed back in the fine print. Many of the top providers, however, could be more transparent about whether they log user activity, Grower says. Almost all VPNs claim that they don't log what their users do, but Grower's team found that the VPN client software used by several top providers kept logs on users' computers, which is... Uh, that's a little less useful because there's if you've got access to someone's client computer, you can probably just look at their browser history. But you might think to clear your browser history, and you might not think about uh, the fact that there's a, a log on your computer from your VPN with that same information in it. Anyway, uh, m back to the article. Many VPNs could also be clearer about how long they keep the user data they do collect, and many don't let users see what has been collected about them. So, should you use a VPN? It depends on what you want to use it for, says Troutman. Many ISPs keep logs of customer behavior for years, and if that bothers you, and you can find a VPN that you trust more than your ISP, go ahead and use it. Frequent travelers who need secure connections while abroad will also need VPNs, although streaming content across national borders isn't as reliable as it was a few years ago. And if you're doing anything illegal in the country you happen to live in, a VPN should be the first step in masking your online activities. But for the average home user who isn't concerned about what their ISP knows and doesn't need to access streaming services from overseas, paying for a VPN might not be worth it. All right, so I, I will I want to circle back real quick to that claim that there's not a lot of harm in doing these things. You just may be paying for something you don't need. Anytime you install any software on your computer, that software may have vulnerabilities. And so therefore, any unnecessary software you have is an unnecessary risk. Next, these VPN providers often request way more access to things on your computer than they really should. Not quite as bad maybe as antivirus software, but still. Under the rubric of trying to prevent as many bad things from happening to you as possible, they still may try to access, you know, maybe your downloads folder or something like that to keep an eye on things that you might be downloading. Kind of like an antivirus software. But the key thing here is you need to trust them because what you're really doing here is you're blocking the visibility into the websites you're visiting and the communications with that website for the first leg of your internet trip. So again, I, I like to think about the old Hogan's Hero TV show where the, the guys in the Stalag in Germany had a secret tunnel out of the prison camp that popped up in the forest nearby. But once they pop up in the forest, they're visible just like anybody else is visible. But that tunnel allows them to come and go from the camp without being seen. So similarly, if you had a tunnel out of your basement that popped up, you know, maybe into the street next door or into an alleyway 200 feet away from your house, you could come and go from your house without being seen by anybody who's looking at your house or maybe by your neighbors. But once you come out, you're regular out in the real world like anybody else. VPNs are the same way. They create this kind of virtual opaque digital tunnel between you and the VPN service provider. So every bit of traffic that goes between you and the provider is unseeable by anybody looking at it from the outside. And the main threat there would probably be your internet service provider. And keep in mind that your internet service provider is whoever is giving you immediate access to the internet. So when you're at home, it's your, you know, your cable company or your satellite company, however, or your fiber company, however you're getting internet service at home. But when you're uh, out and about, like on your cell phone, uh, on cellular data, your internet service provider is your cell phone provider. And it may not be your chosen cell phone provider if you're roaming in another country. And finally, if you're at a restaurant or a coffee shop or at the airport or a hotel, and you get on the internet using their Wi-Fi, or if you plug into an ethernet port, I don't know how common that is these days. It seems like everything's Wi-Fi now. But if you do go to like a hotel room or something where you actually jack in, 
they are still your internet service provider, meaning that whatever traffic goes through that pipe, either the Wi-Fi wireless pipe or the Ethernet cable pipe, uh, is potentially viewable by them. Now, again, today, thanks to Let's Encrypt, uh, most of our internet connections are encrypted already, meaning that the contents of what goes back and forth is encrypted. But they're not all encrypted. There are still some things that aren't. In a lot of cases, that's DNS queries. You know, like if, but when I want to look up the IP address of Amazon.com, often today that is still not encrypted, meaning that your internet service provider can still see where you're going, even if they don't see the actual traffic. And then there's other metadata they can still see, like they still know when and how much you're communicating, like they can still see the packets go by, and they can see how many packets are going by, either to and from, and what time they're happening, and how so how long you're doing stuff they can see, and how much data you're sending and receiving, they can see that. They just don't know who you're communicating with. So I wrote a whole blog article about this with yet another analogy on how all this works. So if you're interested, you can go to my blog at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and you can read up about it there. Uh, if you're a newsletter subscriber, you already have it sitting in your inbox right now. But the last thing I want to do for the tip of the week is, is there's all these articles about you know what a VPN is and what it isn't and what the pros and cons are, but very few of them actually get into okay, how do you actually do this? Like, what, is, what does it mean to use VPN? Like, what do I do? So if you're not familiar with that, let me run through that just real quick. So first and foremost, you got to choose your service. Uh, I've got an article about choosing a good VPN. The ones they mentioned here are good. Uh, iVPN or ProtonVPN, uh, Molvad, those are all good and trustworthy. Because again, you're just shifting your trust from your ISP to your VPN provider, because now your VPN provider is seeing everything that goes, goes by. So anyway, you got to pick one first and they, they all have, you know, fees, uh, for the most part, I would stay away from free ones, uh, with, uh, a caveat. Um, for example, proton VPN, which is a very well-respected VPN does have a limited free version, but they make money on the, on the versions that aren't limited. So they have a valid business model that does not require mining your information and selling it to third parties. So that does give you the option to try it for free and see if you like it before maybe paying for the, uh, the more expensive services. Most of these services are anywhere from four to $6 a month. And you can get uh, a little bit of a savings on many of them. If you pay for a year, like a lot of them basically have, you know, buy 10 months, get two free kind of a thing. So first and foremost, you got to pick your provider, set up an account, you know, probably give them a credit card unless they've got a free trial. And then from that website, you're going to download a VPN client. So that is a little piece of software that's going to run on your computer, uh, your laptop, or your cell phone that you will install and configure. And when you do that, it will probably set up what's called a VPN profile. And so the VPN profile is kind of like a, a set of configurations for that VPN service that you just set up. So uh, let's say, because you, you might want to have more than one profile. Maybe you've got one for work. Maybe you've got one for travel. Maybe you've got one for banking. I don't know how you want to split things up, but it allows you to actually create different profiles because in, in those profiles, you can choose what kind of protocol you want to run. And more than likely, you'll just let it auto select that though. If you have a choice, uh, WireGuard is a very good one, but often you'll just pick the auto settings or the smart settings, which will pick the best one available for you for the, for the fastest traffic. You can also, as part of this configuration in the profile, you can choose what country you want to pop out in. Again, think of it as a tunnel that goes through the internet and pops up where you want it to. Uh, most of these companies have VPN servers all around the planet. Uh, for example, if you were traveling in Europe and you want to access your U.S. Netflix account, then you would want a server in the United States. So your VPN profile for traveling in Europe would connect to the United States and pop out on the internet there so that Netflix in the United States would see a U.S.-based IP address. And if you're lucky, 
would be fooled by that and allow you to access your Netflix account. Though in reality, these services are really cracking down on that stuff and they're very good at figuring out what a VPN IP address is and they'll block them usually. But anyway, that is, that is, that is one of the things you can specify on a VPN profile. Now you can also set this up to either run all the time, like when your computer first pops up before you ever connect to the internet, tell it to run the VPN constantly all the time. And most of them also have what's called a kill switch, meaning that when you are connected to the VPN, you've made the decision that you want to be protected, that if for some reason that glitches, if for some reason that connection is lost, it will block all internet traffic until it can reconnect. Uh, meaning that there's no leakage. Like let's say you let's say you get on the VPN, you're all connected, then you start doing something that you don't want your ISP to know, and behind the scenes that VPN has failed, and now all of a sudden you're no longer on a VPN. Well, it's you, you, ideally in that situation you want the VPN client to tell you, "Oops, hey, wait a minute, let me reconnect," and and until I do, you cannot access the internet because you've told me you want to be private, and I can't guarantee your privacy right now. So give me a minute to get this straightened out and then we'll put you back on the internet and uh, you can connect again. Uh, that's called a kill switch. So anyway, these are common things that are part of these profiles and you'll set up these profiles. And then from then on, you'll just invoke this profile. Again, you could either launch it on demand when you want to have privacy uh, for a certain period of time, or you can tell your device to launch it at startup so that you're always on a VPN. So a couple quick notes. Um, there are some browser-based VPNs. For instance, Firefox has got a VPN function built into it. Uh, just know that if you do that, you're only protecting what's going on in that browser. Doesn't hide your traffic from anything else you do, like from another browser uh, or all the apps or your operating system that are, you know, talking to the internet in the background, phoning home, looking for updates or things like that. You know, none of that would be going through the VPN if you use a VPN built into your browser. So for that reason. I would avoid that, but as long as you understand what that means, you know, feel free. And finally, there will be inconvenience. This <laughs> VPNs cause all sorts of trouble. Like there's, there's just going to be weird problems. Like you're going to find some sites that might block you altogether if they think you're coming from a VPN because they insist upon knowing who and or where you are. Uh, your IP address you know, gives them a rough idea through geolocation where you are. And if they can't tell where you are, or if they think you're trying to hide your IP address from them and they feel that they need to know who you are or to recognize you when you come back to that site by your IP address, they may just say, you know what? It looks like you're on a VPN. If you want to access my site, you need to stop doing that. So you will hit that. For other sites, because they're not going to recognize you, the IP address is going to look weird. It's going to change all the time. It's not going to be the one they're used to seeing for you. They're going to challenge you more. They're going to say, hey, uh, you need to do two-factor authentication because I don't recognize this de this device that you're calling from because the IP address looks funny. Uh, it's not an IP address they recognize for you. So at that point, they could challenge you for two-factor authentication more than usual, uh, or they could force you to go through one of those dumb little CAPTCHA things where you've got to you know click on all the pictures or whatever. Uh, you know, So you might hit more stumbling blocks, more roadblocks, because you look fishy to them. And sometimes VPNs just don't work. Sometimes they just don't connect. And they could be blocked by your hotel, they could be blocked by your ISP, there could just be glitches. So be prepared for inconvenience when you use a, uh, a VPN. The one last thing I will throw out if you are so inclined, uh, as you can find some home routers, some off the shelf, and some maybe you have to um, put your custom firmware on like OpenWRT. Uh, where you can actually build the VPN into the router, meaning that your entire home, everything connected to that router over Wi-Fi is automatically funneled through a VPN. And so you would actually set up and start the VPN probably running all the time on the router itself. That's a little extreme, uh, but it can be done. So I thought I'd throw it out there in case that might interest you. 
Okay, so there you go. That's what a VPN is. That's what a VPN isn't. And that is how they work. All right, everybody, that's it. I'm going to wrap it up here quickly. Next week, we have another interview. And I believe next week will be the one from Andy Yen, the CEO of ProtonMail. However, I do have a few interviews in the can, and uh, I may make an editorial decision to swap that out for another one. But regardless, there will be an interview next week. And the one with ProtonMail uh, will be coming soon, if not next week. Also, I think I'm going to be running another promotion in May, probably another Patreon promotion uh, for Challenge Coins. So stay tuned for information on that. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. That way you won't miss anything. Uh, I would love for you to leave a really nice review, a nice five-star review uh, on, you know, on whatever service you use to get the podcast. Uh, if you've read the book, I'd also love to have some reviews there. I do keep an eye on those for new ones, and as I find them, I will read them here on the air. Okay, that's going to do it for this week, everybody. Take care, and until next time, as always, stay safe, and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.